Good morning. Would you turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. And we're going to be looking at chapter 10, the first part of chapter 10 today, Lord willing. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overrun in the wilderness. Now these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it was written, the people sat down and and ate and drank and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? So, Lord, I I thank you um, for this passage of Scripture. I thank you for this opportunity that we have to uh, work through it this morning. I I do pray, as Tim prayed, that we we would not merely learn, but we would live. And Father, even in the middle of that, I pray that we would learn your word. I pray that we would love you more and love others more because of what we're hearing and then live out that gospel message. So today I pray that you would help us to to learn from the past, apply it to the present, and help us to do that all for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we've been in these series of messages now for the last uh, number of weeks, and we've been dealing with this topic of food sacrificed to idols. Believe it or not, Paul started all this back in chapter 8, and now he is coming to a conclusion in chapter 10 and the first part of chapter 11, this whole topic of food sacrificed to idols. And there were two key things I need you to consider. The first thing I want you to find out and think about is this. Is it okay to eat food 
that is sacrificed to an idol. And if you remember in chapter 8, Paul said this, that there is no idol. If you want to eat, you're free to eat. But then there was the general principle, if you remember from chapter 8. If your freedom to eat is going to hinder work in another believer's life, you should allow love to supersede your liberty. You should allow your love to supersede your freedom. You should give up eating this food in order for love. So the first question that Paul said is, uh, was trying to answer is, is it okay to eat food sacrificed to idols? And the answer he gave was, maybe. It may be okay for me to have that T-bone steak, or as somebody said to me, you only talk about T-bone steaks, James. Don't you ever talk about chicken? And it's like, so I'll talk about chicken. I mean, so whatever it is, it, it would be okay to eat that food. Possibly. As long as it's not a stumbling block to a believer. But there was a second question that Paul had to deal with. And he's going to deal with that in this chapter. Was it okay to go to pagan temples where these sacrifices were occurring? So can I eat? Possibly. Can I go to these temples where they're worshiping these idols? Paul's going to answer that today. So I have a question for you. What was your favorite subject in school? Music. Music. I wonder why, huh? <laughs> that wasn't mine if you've heard my voice. Um, so, uh, actually, my favorite subject in school, believe it or not, was history. Yeah, I, I loved history. And I know for some people, it is boring. And so, you remember this quote, and it went this way, those who do not learn history are doomed to what? Repeat it, right? So, um, I love history, especially American history, learning about our country and learning about the beginnings, all the trials and the ups and downs. But if you do not remember your past, it is possible that you will do the same thing over and over again. So as Paul is dealing with this topic of food sacrifice to idols, he starts by giving a principle in chapter 8, your love should supersede your liberty. Then he went into chapter 9, and he gave you a positive example of how that could happen. If you remember, the positive example was this. Paul, as the apostle, had the right to receive financial benefits from this church. But Paul and Barnabas, out of love for the church, said, I'm giving that up. I am sacrificing this. He is giving up the liberty that he had out of love. And he tended to do this, apparently, in other churches. He would go to the church, and where he's ministering, he's ministering here at the chapel at Warren Valley. He would not take a salary from this church. He would receive income from other churches so that he would be here to give his time for this body. That's the way he tended to work. So Paul began with a principle in chapter 8, love should supersede your liberty. Chapter 9, he gives you a positive illustration of that, how he in his life and Barnabas' life, he said, I don't want to do anything that's going to hinder the gospel from going out. And then in chapter 10, he gives you a negative example. And he goes back to the history of Israel in the Old Testament, and he says, I want to show you what Israel did, and you need to be warned. So that's what we're going to try to do this morning. And I went back to chapter 9 because there was this interesting line at the end. Paul had talked about that he was running to win, and then he said this, I need to, verse 27, discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. 
So this, this line has caused a lot of problems for some people. Some people are wondering if Paul is actually saying that it is possible for a regenerate believer in Christ, a person who's been born again, to actually lose their salvation. Well, if you know Paul and if you know the rest of Scripture, that can't be the case. So Paul is not saying that you could potentially lose your salvation in the midst of this. But what Paul is saying is this, I believe, that he's losing his effectiveness for the gospel to go out in his life. And what he's going to give you is an illustration of what happened in Israel hundreds or thousands of years before of men and women who were saved in some way by God, who did not live in a God-pleasing way, and they were disapproved of by God. And so I want you to think this morning about a warning, number one, and then worship, number two. The warning is we need to remember our past because if we do not remember our past, we are doomed to repeat it. I often hear people say that if I was Adam and Eve, I would not have done it. It's like, are you kidding me? You guys can't get through a day without sinning. It's like, why would you think that you wouldn't have done the same thing? So the warning we need to hear clearly, and then what real worship is. So let's, let's jump into this passage and see. The first thing I want you to see is the privileges that were true for the nation of Israel and the privileges that are true for the Corinthian believers and the privileges that are true for us as well. It starts in verse 1 of chapter 10. For, now he's connecting to the prior teaching, um, the prior teaching that I've just given to you, uh, and he's saying this, his mission is to reach people, and he will sacrifice his preferences in order to reach people. That's in essence what he's saying. For the sake of the gospel, I will do this. It says, for I do not want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be unaware of what's happening. But then he says, brothers... And once again, I love Paul. You know, some people just can't stand Paul. For some reason, I don't know why. I mean, it's like they think of him as so harsh and demeaning. And it's like, you know, he is, he is loving and gracious. Now, he's going to get into your face, but he's doing it because he loves you. And greater than that, the Holy Spirit is using Paul to write 13 books of the New Testament. So it's Jesus and his Holy Spirit speaking through Paul to you. So you must hear this. And he's talking to them as brothers, and he's saying, brothers, this familiar language, that our fathers, he goes back to our forefathers, were, and listen to the, all these words, all under a cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud, in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. Do you hear the repeated word in there? All. So, so. Paul is saying, I'm gonna, I want you to go back to the Israelites, and I want you to think about this new freedom. And he's, he's thinking back to the Exodus. The Israelites were in bondage. The Jewish people were in bondage in Egypt for 400 years. And they cried out for a redeemer. Separate us from this. Take us out of this slavery. Take us out of this bondage. That's what they're crying out for. And then God sent them a redeemer, and the redeemer was who? Moses. And Moses was going to be used to bring his people out of Egypt and into, out of the desert into a promised land. And, and he's saying that all of these people were under a cloud. If you remember after they came out of Egypt, after they were miraculously, after ten plagues, you know, Pharaoh said no, Pharaoh said no, Pharaoh said no, over and over again. And then finally on that tenth plague, the plague that was the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh says, get out of here. 
and, and the Jewish people were even able to plunder stuff from, from the uh, Egyptians. And they were leaving. And you remember, they were leaving as God is guiding them with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And then they, they come to the Red Sea. And at that Red Sea, you remember what happened. They're standing in front of the Red Sea and the Egyptian army is coming after them. And the Red Sea stands before them. And, and God miraculously opened the Red Sea and took them through on dry ground. And then when the Israel, I'm sorry, the Egyptians were following after them, what happened? He closed up that sea. And as Moses wrote in one of his songs, horse and rider fell into the sea. They were saved miraculously. Out of bondage, they were, in essence, baptized as they came to this um, going through the Red Sea. And Moses was their leader. And what, what Moses is saying is this, I mean, what Paul is saying is this, that they were all brought through with God's perpetual presence of the cloud that's there and his daily provisions for them. You remember as they ate, they were in the wilderness and what God provided for them was that that manna. And it's like they looked at it and they named it manna and it actually was, what is it? They, they had no idea and it was this this food that God was providing for them supernaturally. So God provided his perpetual presence, but he also provided his perpetual provision for them. And he, he led them through this desert time and they needed food and they complained, but God gave them food. They needed drink. And if you remember, there was a rock that was there and God called Moses to strike the rock and out of that rock, water came out to him. And what Paul does is he uses this, this imagery of what happened that they were rescued out of slavery. They were taken through the sea and baptized into Moses. They were led by God's perpetual presence. They were led by God's provision as well. This spiritual food and the spiritual drink, and he symbolized it in the person of Christ. He's saying that it was Christ who was there with them. It was Christ who was providing for them. It was Christ who was present with them. It was Christ that was giving them their provisions. It was Christ that was supporting his people then, and it is Christ who is supporting his people now. We need to hear that. And Paul was saying that you guys are, are exactly like this. The Corinthian believers are exactly like this. You've been rescued out of darkness, out of bondage, out of sin. And, and for some of you, as we were here last week, some of you have gone into the waters of baptism to symbolize what Christ has done for you. And, and we take a communion service in a couple of weeks where we'll be eating a bread and taking a cup. We're just like the, the Israelites. We're just like the Corinthians. But verse 5 is a really difficult verse. He went from explaining the privileges that the Israelites had to the problem that they had as well. He begins with this word, nevertheless. Sharp contrast. It's like black and white. Sharp contrast. With most of them, what was the phrase? God was what? Not pleased. I've been taken out of Egypt. I've been taken through the Red Sea. I've been taken, I've been given spiritual food. I've been given spiritual drink. And for most of us, God was not pleased. You need to hear this warning this morning. 
there are some Christians that live their lives as though I've been rescued and that's all I have to do. They don't think about loving others. They don't think about serving others. They don't think about giving up their sacrifices. They don't even think about allowing God to be their leader. And God is giving a warning today that for most of these people I was not pleased. I want you to think about this, that I don't even know how many thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people came out of Egypt. How many went into the promised land that were 20 years or older? Two. Even Moses, their leader, did not get to go into the promised land. Aaron, their spiritual leader, did not get to go into the promised land. Miriam, their sister, did not get to go into the promised land. And there was a promise that God There's a warning that God wants to tell us. Don't uh, mistake this. Moses didn't lose his salvation. Miriam and Aaron did not lose their salvation. They lost privileges because of actions in their lives. And that's what Paul was saying. Do not be disqualified. You run a race, and I used to run track, and you run a race, and you, you do something wrong, and you get disqualified. Maybe you started out too quickly, and you're going to be disqualified. You may have run the best race of your life, but because you failed, you're disqualified. And Paul is saying is this, I want you to be so used to reflect the gospel to people's lives. He wants you to use that. He wants to be used by you. So he, let's talk about the problem. The problem is sin. It starts in verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown. That means they were killed in the wilderness. And Paul is now going to go through a series of things that have happened in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel in this wilderness time. And he gives four major sins of the wilderness. So here are the first sins. He says, now these things took place as an example. I want you to hear this. For us, we need to learn from our history that we might not desire evil as they did. So the overarching issue, they desired evil more than they desired God. And here are the four things. The first, do not be, what? Idolaters, as some of them were. It's interesting that he's gone from all of them to some of them. So it's not every single person. But some of them were idolaters. And as it is written, they sat down and ate and drank and rose up to play. So so Paul is, is talking about, in all likelihood, Exodus chapter 32. This afternoon, maybe you'll get a chance to read through it. Let me just give you the highlights or what I'll tell you the lowlights are. So, so God is um, there with Moses, and the people have turned aside from God. What have they done? Moses is up getting the Ten Commandments from God. God, with his own seeming finger, is writing these Ten Commandments, his, his love letter to us about how we are called to live in a God-honoring way. And Moses is up there, and these people are getting impatient And in their impatience, what do they do? They go to Aaron and they say, make us a what? A God. 
And they put this golden calf. Mo, um, Aaron tells them to bring all of their jewelry, and then he puts it into a fire, and he crafts this golden calf. And now they're corrupting themselves in front of this golden calf, and they're saying that it was they're worshiping it, and they're saying that it was this God that led us out of bondage. And God calls them a stiff-necked people, and God's anger is burning. And the great sin that was there because they had rejected God as their leader and replaced him with something else. All right, James, how many of us actually go and put gold together and put a golden calf and bend down to it? I understand. But we have our own idols that we go after. The things that we think are going to satisfy us and secure us and where we look for our significance. That's your idol. What's the thing that you think you desperately need in order to be happy? That's your idol. And so what... What Moses is saying here, or what Paul is talking about here, is that these people, instead of worshiping God, worshiped this idol. Now you remember what happened. Um, Moses comes down from the hill and he on you know, the mountain, and he has the two tablets of stone in his hand, and he slams them down on the ground. And then he goes to Aaron and he says, how could you allow these people to corrupt you? And it was kind of, it's actually kind of funny if you've read it. Um, Aaron said, you know, I, I told them to bring some gold and silver and we put it together and then out came the calf. <laughs> it's like it just miraculously came out of this, out of this um, fire. Aaron was not taking responsibility for the leadership that he was causing. And what, what Moses starts by saying is this, they were idolaters. They made something bigger than God for their satisfaction. But there's a second thing that they did. Not only were they idolaters, but verse 8 in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, they indulged in sexual immorality, as some of them did. He's probably thinking about Numbers chapter 25, verse 18, maybe the end of Numbers 32. Um, But what God is asking and demanding of his people is that we be pure. There's an interesting tendency in Scripture that we go from idolatry to immorality. And the two things that were in the Corinthian church are the two things that are happening in the United States and around this world today. We make idols of things and we become sexually immoral. Those two things go together all the time. And so Paul is saying is that they rose up in their idolatry, but now they're rising up in their sexual immorality. In Numbers Numbers chapter 25, we see that the men started to have sexual immorality with the Moabite women. They ate and bowed down to Moabite gods. They, They hung around with these chiefs. They were yoking themselves together with false gods. And the Midianite women were bringing them down and moving them away from a true worship of God. And the immorality was great and heavy. There was a man, Phineas, that saw this man who brought his Midianite woman into the tabernacle, into the tent at that time, and he, uh, he killed her out of his anger and his divine anger, his desire to honor God um, and to be devoted, his zealousness for God's holiness. God was so angry with these people that 24,000 of them died in a plague. And what we have is Moses intervening again for these people. The anger of the Lord would have raised up against them, but God's anger was quelled 
because of the intercession of a mediator, Moses. So Moses saw their immorality. Moses saw their idolatry. But Moses also saw them in verse 9, putting Christ to the test. And what he did was this. The people grumbled. This is probably taken out of Numbers chapter 21. In Numbers chapter 21, what the people did was they started to complain that they didn't have food. Then they complained that they didn't have water to eat. So God gave them food and he gave them water to eat. And then what they did in their arrogance is that they wanted to believe that if we want to go back to Egypt, we'll have a better meal if we go back to Egypt. So they were attacking Moses. They were attacking God. And they were going against God's leadership. They grew impatient. They complained bitterly. And over and over again, this grumbling, this detesting what God had done for them, despising God's gifts, despising God's provisions, blaming him. And they spoke against God and his leaders. And what God did as a punishment for them was that serpents came out and attacked them. And many of them were in great pain and some of them were dying. And what God did was through Moses, he says, I want to give you an intercessor. And Moses was to take a serpent and put him on a pole and stick it in the ground. And as every person that looked at the serpent on the pole, they would be healed. Can you jump with me to uh, John chapter 3? Hold your finger there and go to John chapter 3. Most people know 3.16, right? For God so loved the world. But 3.14 says this. And as Moses lift up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whosoever believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So as Moses is symbolizing in the desert, he puts this serpent on a, on a bowl, and people would look to this serpent and they would be healed. God is symbolizing what Christ was going to do, that Christ, thousands of years later, would be lifted up on a cross and that all who look to him will be saved. So the people were struggling with immor- in idolatry. They were looking to other gods. The people were struggling with immorality. They were going and becoming sexually active as the world is asking them to do. Then they became testers of God. They started to complain against God's provision and against God's leadership. And then he ends with this, grumbling. In verse 10, immorality, idolatry, testing God, and then grumbling. Numbers chapter 16, um, verses 41 through 50, if you want to read that later, um, we have Korah's rebellion. And if you're familiar with this, Korah was this leader, and he was given amazing privileges by God, but he was not a priest. 
and he joined the Reubenite priest to oppose Aaron's authority. And as they did this, they rose up against Moses and rose up against Aaron. And they were saying that you guys are taking power away from us. And they, they believed that they were holy and they believed that God was on their side. And they deserved to be priest. They minimized the privileges that God had given them. Datham and Abiram despised Moses and blamed him for Israel's failures. And the glory of the Lord came upon them, and God's wrath came out until Moses interceded. The earth actually opened up and swallowed these people whole. 250 of their, these leaders would be killed. And instead of repentance that you would expect from the people after they saw this miraculous thing happen, what did the people do? They complained against Moses again, and they complained against Aaron. They said that Moses and Aaron killed these people and that Moses and Aaron are, are trying to take leadership. They rallied, raised a loud cry. They complained about their circumstances. They grumbled, they murmured, they complained, they whined. They wanted to go back into slavery again. They wanted to go back into Egypt They refused to trust God and they rebelled against him. They rejected the glory of God. And God's wrath was there, but Moses interceded once again and said, God, your name, God, your promise. God had already planned to use Moses as the redeemer. He wasn't going to wipe out these people, but he used Moses as the redeemer. It wasn't as God's mind got changed or that he needed to be checked by Moses. God is not checked by any human being, but he used Moses as the mediator for grace to these people. So what does this have to do with me and what does this have to do with us, James? In our idolatry today, we make things more important than God. We need to be very careful. Sexual immorality is rampant in our country. It has come into the Christian church, and there are believers in Christ that believe that they can live immoral lives and that they're okay with God. They're missing it. There are people today that will test God's limits. How many of us are parents in here? Don't, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many times have you had a kid that has tested your limits? It's like, one more time, that's enough, one more, I said one more time, that's enough, right? And I am a sinner. God is not. And they were testing God over and over and over again. Their immorality, their idolatry, they're testing God, and then they're grumbling. They're complaining. God has given you blessing upon blessing upon blessing, but we have a tendency to grumble and complain. So Paul says you need to be very careful that you're not disqualified. That your life may not be cut short because of the things. Maybe your ministry will be disbanded because of things that are in your life. So he has now moved from the privileges that they had to the problem that they had to this promise in verse 11. Now, these things happened to them as examples, but were written down for our instruction on whom the 
ages, end of the ages has come. So once again, Paul is saying, I want you to hear the example. I want you to hear from them. I want you to learn from your history so you're not doomed to repeat it. And then he says, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. I have this 90-year-old counselee, um, and um, last year she had come to my counseling office and it was icy that day, and I had actually told her, why don't we do our meeting by phone, because I really don't know if I want you coming out and driving in this. And But, you know, she had this mindset, she's going to come. So I, I met her in the parking lot, and I walked out into the parking lot, and I brought her into my office. I had her by my arm, I took her into my office, we had our meeting, and then at the end of the meeting, you know what I did? I walked her back out to the car, very gingerly walking out to the car, right? I got her into her car, and she left. Then I got into my office, and I remembered I forgot something in my car. So what did I do? I went out to the car, and the last thing I remember is I'm out. (laughs) I am down. My hand is throbbing, my shoulder, and I had hit the back of my head on the ground. I went down that quick. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Paul is saying, you need to hear this warning. But here's the promise, this beautiful promise right here. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So what's the promise there? God is what? Faithful. I didn't hear you. Say it again. God is what? Oh, say it with some meaning. God is faithful. Thank you. God is faithful. For some of us in this room, we are feeling weak and despondent. We're discouraged. Sometimes people read scripture and all they hear is just condemnation. Then they hear negative, I'm never good enough. I'm never going to be good enough. I can't do it. And they feel overwhelmed by hearing scripture. And it's like, oh man, you're missing it. Yes, we are weak, but in Christ we are strong. Yes, I lack, but in Christ I have grace. Grace, amazing grace. And, and Paul is saying here is that you have the greatest promise. God is faithful. In the midst of your ups and downs, in the midst of your insecurities, in the midst of your pain and your struggles, God is faithful. Faithful. And he's faithful in, in, in two ways here in the midst of this temptation. One, he provides for you as your protection. And second, he provides for you a path. Your protection is this. He says, I will never allow a temptation that is not common to man, that which is human. One of the things I will have counselees say to me often is that, James, you just don't understand because the thing I'm going through, nobody else has gone through. That's a lie right from the pit of hell. And it gets you to believe that your problem is unique and that there is nothing that anybody has ever gone through that has gone through this trial like you have, and therefore there's no answer to it. It's a lie. It's, not, it's common. What you're going through is not unusual and it's not unique. Other people probably in this church are struggling with the same thing that you're struggling with. You're not alone. 
So he, he's providing you this protection that you are not alone in this. This is not uncommon. And then he provides you the protection that I will not allow this temptation to beyond be your, your ability. I don't want to minimize the sufferings that people go through. And some people will pull a verse out of Scripture and just stamp it on you as though everything should be changed just because of this verse. But I want you to hear the promise in it. Some of the suffering that you're going through is painful and very difficult. Trying. But in the midst of that trial, God is faithful. You're not alone. You're not alone because this trial is not unique only to you, and you're not alone because God is not going to allow this trial to overwhelm you because there's nothing that will ever come into your life that is greater than the power of God in your life. God is faithful. God's wonderful protection from you, for you. And I don't know what the suffering is, this temptation is. Maybe this temptation is some testing that you're going through. Maybe it's some health issues or relational issues. I don't know what the trial is. Maybe it's right from the pit of hell and Satan. I do not know, but what I can tell you is this. As 1 Corinthians, as 1 Peter chapter 1 says, in this you can rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor that God wants to take this trial that you're going through and grow your faith. Or as James said, James chapter 1, consider it what? Pure joy when you encounter various trials. That the God is faithful to you. He is faithful in his protection of you. You're not alone, and he's going to limit these trials. But then I want you to know that God is faithful in the fact that he's given you a path. He's given you a path out of the trial. He says, but with this temptation, he will provide the way. My version has the way. In, in, in Greek, it is the definitive. It's not just a way. It's the way through the trial. What's the way through the trial? It's a narrow way, yes, but what's the way through this trial? If you remember back to Jesus, spend some time this afternoon in Matthew chapter 4. When Jesus was tempted, where did he go? Prayer and God's word. He was empowered in his relationship with God. He spent time in prayer, but he defeated the temptations that came to him through the word. That's the path. And what Paul is saying to those that are weak and discouraged and overwhelmed, grow your faith in God, trust in his faithfulness, and he will take you through. So Paul begins by talking about the privileges that they had. The, the problem was their sin, their, their idolatry, their morality, their testing God, their grumbling. And then he gives this great promise that God is faithful. And he says that God is going to protect you and he's going to provide the way out. And then Paul ends with the last eight verses talking about a basic principle in practice. He says this, Therefore, verse 14, once again, connecting to what he said, my beloved, flee idolatry. Run away from it. Anything that is going to take your allegiance from God, run away. And then he says, I want you to think. I want to speak to you as sensible people. <clears throat> think about Paul. I love Paul. 
is that he is like an attorney. He, he considers the argument, and he's already got an answer for it. See, people have a problem with the Apostle Paul. I would just challenge you, go through his arguments. And if you go through his arguments, you're going to find out he's right. Over and over again, whether he takes the Old Testament or the present situation, he is going to argue you through back to truth and sensibility. Some of the struggles that people have in counseling is that they get so darkened by what's happened in their lives, they can't see. They're like in a fog. And part of the job of a counselor is to help to shine a light so that they could see again. The Holy Spirit's the only one that could do that, but the counselor is there to try to open their eyes to show them truth. And that's what Paul is doing here. And Paul says, here's the principle and the practice. Now, with the principle I've already told you back in chapter 8 is this. Liberty should be submissive to love. Your love should supersede liberty. I've given you a positive example in my life. Paul said in chapter 9, now I'm giving you the negative example in the warning, and now here's worship. And he talks about, he brings the Lord's table into it. Now here's argument as I close this. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the body or the blood of Christ? This word participation is here in verse 16. It's again in verse, second time in verse 16. It takes on that form in verse 17 where it says to partake of one bread. And then again it is in verse 20 where it says we do not want you to be participants with demons. It's the word koinonia. It's the word fellowship. It's actually where we get our word communion, like our Lord's Supper or communion. We come together as a body of believers to commune with God and to commune with one another. Fellowship. And what Paul was saying is this. I want you to consider that when we take a cup of blessing together in a couple of weeks, we're participating in communion with one another and with God. God is there in a special way. See, we believe that God is there in a special way on our baptismal services, but God is also there in a special way when we have these Lord's Suppers. He's here in a special way with you. And Paul is saying that, I want you to think that the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? A communion with the body of Christ. In verse 17, there was one bread, one sacrifice, and we who are many are one body. For we all partake, once again, participation, of one bread, Now he says, consider, verse 18, I want you to think, the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participate, are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. So when they ate the Old Testament sacrifices, the people ate, they identified with God, they were devoted to God, so the sacrifices that they made, they were devoted to the God that they were eating those sacrifices for. So what Paul is saying is this, verse 19. What do I imply? That food offered to an idol is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. Remember the two questions? Is it wrong to eat food sacrificed to idols? First question. It may not be wrong. There's nothing with an idol. The food means nothing. You can eat your T-bone steak or your chicken, and, and you're fine. Except, here's the exception issue. If it causes my brother to stumble, I shouldn't. But you remember the second question he was trying to deal with. Is it okay for me to go to a pagan temple and to worship with them? And he says, no. 
We should not go into that pagan temple where they're going to be sacrificing to an idol, even if we know that there is no idol, because you are participating in that service. And your participation is a fellowship. Like it or not, that when you participate in this world, you are in essence fellowshipping with this world. See, when you participate with worldly things, you are identifying with worldly things. And Paul's argument is this. T-bone steak means nothing. I'll give it up for love of, believe, uh, love of other believers. But I'm not going to go into worldly religion. Because I do that, I'm participating with them as much as I'm taking the Lord's Supper. I'm participating with them, and then I'm identifying. When you take the Lord's Supper, you're identifying with Christ's cross. And when you go into a pagan worship, you're identifying with their God. And worse than that, this God is demonic. See, there is only one true worship in this world, Christ. Everything else comes from the evil one. So Paul ends by saying this, Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? I think we sing a song, God has no what? Rival. God has no equal. God tolerates no competition in his life. You are his. You were created in his mind before this world was ever created. Your salvation, if you were in Christ, was already planned before this world was ever created. Your salvation was purchased by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are his. Give up the things that are going to hinder the gospel from flowing out of your life and never, ever, ever participate in worldly things of worship. Now, does that mean that we shouldn't uh, have unbelieving, believer, uh, unbelieving people in our lives? Absolutely not. We should. How else are we going to get the gospel out? But there's a huge difference, young people, when you go to school tomorrow, there's a huge difference between having ungodly friends that you're trying to minister to or becoming ungodly. Huge difference. There's a huge difference adult when you go to work tomorrow. Huge difference between having ungodly friends that you're trying to minister to or you're becoming like them. So you need to be very careful. The warning is here. Give up the immorality. Give up the immora- um, in idolatry. Watch your testing of God. Watch your grumbling. The promise is here. God is faithful. He wants to use you to reflect his glory. The only reason we're here is to demonstrate and to display the gospel. But here's the practice. The practice is this. You can't be like the world. You have to be different. And you have to give up your idolatry, and therefore you're going to have real worship of God. So Lord, I pray. Father, I, when we think of uh, the Israelites, 
How many times do we read those stories and say they don't mean anything to us? Yet the vast majority of our Bible is the Old Testament. We need to know the Old Testament. We need to know that history. And then, Father, we look at these um, people in the Israelite time and, and we say that they made so many stupid mistakes and we would never do that. But, Father, we can't even get through an hour without our idolatry, without our grumbling, without our testing you, and, and maybe without our immorality. And then for some of us, Father, we get so overwhelmed thinking that we will never be free and you promise us right in the middle of this that you're faithful. That in spite of our faithlessness, you are faithful. You will not deny yourself. But Father, I pray that we would also recognize that the Christian life is not just about being saved, it is about being changed. So start to change us, Father. Change the way we think. Help us to start to think clearly. Help us to start to change in the uh, way that we um, connect with this world, Father. Help us to stop looking like the world, because if we look like the world, we'll never win the world. Help us to be different, Father. Father, transform us and remind us that uh, you're a jealous God because you love us. You love us with an everlasting love. Help us to be faithful to you. In Jesus' name, amen.